Another way we can prepare our hearts for Easter is uh, through this study of Judges. Um, Judges is just such a mess. And today is really a turning point, not only for Israel, but a turning point for God's attitude towards Israel. Uh, it, it is absolutely a mess. And, and we've tried to portray that with the mess that's up here um, on, the, on the stage, including, by the way, the old projector. I thought that was really fun. We have the old projector that used to project the image back here. This image is way brighter. Uh, we've been waiting supply chains for things to come in, so the image is brighter. Um, we've actually got some new amplifiers in the back, so just to remind you again, we used to have the, the, the sound in the room was just the same everywhere. Uh, we now have it controlled a little bit more so that if, if you want it to be louder, you want louder worship, move forward. If the worship's more too, more, you know, too loud for your comfort, you can move to, to the back of the room. It's going to be a little quieter back there, not a lot, but it's going to be a little quieter back there, a little louder up front. We're, we're able to control that. We've got a brighter projector. And so just that old crummy projector, which is not all that crummy, um, it's, it's part of our junk now. Um, but in, in this story in Judges, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at two minor characters in chapter 10, and then kind of the turn with God's attitude towards Israel at the end of chapter 10. Um, Tola and Jair and Israel. Um, how this all fits together, again, the book of Judges um, is going to introduce us to 12 judges in total. That 12 number, numbers are going to be big today in the message. That, that number of 12 judges is kind of because the whole nation of Israel, all 12 tribes, are part of this degeneration, part of this idolatry and rebellion that God has to continually save them from. And so there are 12 judges. There are six major judges that we talk about. The guy we talked about last week, Abimelech, is not a judge. He sets himself up as a king. He's not, not one of the judges. But six major judges, uh, of whom we've already talked about four, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, uh, and Gideon, we're, we're setting ourselves up to move to the last two major judges, Jephthah and Samson. And some different things happen with Jephthah and Samson because there's a turn that takes place here in the last part of chapter 10 that we're going to look at. We've looked at one of the minor judges, Shamgar. Today we'll look at Tola and Jair. And then there are three more minor judges to get us up to a total of 12, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon to get us to a total number of 12 judges. Today we'll look at two minor ones, Tola Jair, and we're going to do the setup for Jephthah. Um, I've got some resources out there, and in light of the continued uh, idolatry and apostasy, and yet God's still sticking with his people, uh, this article by Lawson Younger on apostasy and God's grace is, is really worth reading. I, it really kind of gives you some some very practical insight into how, how God deals with us and his, his never-ending grace, but his, um, his clear justice as well, which we're going to see in this passage. First of all, uh, we want to look at this guy named Tola. He's the grandson of Dodo. By the way, that's an interesting uh, fact for him. He's the only person who's, whose grandfather is presented. Some of the other judges, we know who their father is, but this guy, we know his grandfather, and he's Dodo. Uh, graciously, what we're going to see in, in this little short two verses that God occasionally restores some semblance of order in order to advance his overall purposes. In the midst of this book that is declining, that is spiraling out of control, and is really headed toward a place where at the very end of the book, um, there are some passages that in all likelihood I will tell you don't bring your children to uh, when I read those passages, that because the book does, it just degenerates into such horrid um, things going on in the cult culture. 
We are headed that way, and it, it continually gets worse. But there are times when, when God, out of his graciousness, does allow us to have times of rest, <laughs> times of peace, where we kind of just go, we can get ourselves together. And, and we're in a world that's declining, by the way. We're, we're in a world that is, that is getting worse and worse and headed more and more towards judgment. Um, the times are becoming more like the days of Noah, which are described in Genesis 6 like this. Every intention of man's thoughts were only evil all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's just, we're moving that direction, where every intention of people's thoughts, um, it, it's only evil all the time. It's just about self and getting ahead and how they can um, get power over other people. Um, our, our world is falling apart and, and chaos is reigning. Um, on an international scale, on, on a personal scale, and for so many people on an individual scale. But there are times that God graciously will intervene, and, and God will restore and give us a, a season of peace, a season of rest. And we see that with Tola. Here's what it says. After the time of Abimelech, the guy we talked about last week, which was horrible. If you remember, Abimelech, he slays his 70 brothers, and then he kills a, a, a people in two cities. He ambushes all kinds of people. They kill him. It's just chaos back and forth. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led or he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shemir. That's all we know about this guy. Um, by the way, even biblical scholar Alan Ross said this, children all over the world love Tola because he's the grandson of Dodo. So Tola, son of Dodo. I'm looking at some of the children, and they're just laughing like, he's the son of Dodo. Yep, he is. But, but I want to highlight something for him here. It's after the time of Abimelech, after this chaotic time, he, he, he rises to save Israel. And the question could go either way. Is he saving Israel like some of the other judges from other unidentified foreign oppressors? We've seen the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Midianites. Um, we're going to see Philistines. Um, is he saving them from some other unnamed foreign oppressors? It's actually very possible that he's saving them from this chaotic time of Abimelech. Um, after this time of Abimelech where he's killed his brothers and there's revenge and uh, there's, there's whole cities that are that are destroyed, it's after that time of, of chaos that maybe uh, Tola arises to judge Israel and to, to provide some stability. And in God's grace, he, he provides that moment before a, a clear move downward. And I just want to highlight something here. Um, I'm going to ask it this question before I get into the application. How many of you before this week, you know, were just kind of like Tola? He's on my list of heroes. I mean, who even knew Tola existed? Um, but he's significant in God's plan. And to quote um, Francis Schaeffer, there are no little people and no little places. God can and often does use obscure servants like Tola, maybe like you, to accomplish big things for him, even if no one ever notices. You may be one of those people who serves behind the scenes and you just go, I don't even know if anyone notices I'm doing this. God may be using you in some big ways. Um, there are no little people, no little places. If you'll just be faithful, and maybe you're not being noticed, you're not being used because you're just you're passive. You're sitting on the sidelines. 
And I would tell you, get involved. Serve in what we call your shape, where your spiritual gift, your heart and passions are engaged. Um, all the abilities that you have, your personality, your experiences. In, get engaged in a way that, that takes advantage of that and serve faithfully. And maybe no one will notice and you won't be famous like Gideon. Um, maybe you'll just be a Tola. But God will use you as an essential person to move along the story. Tola a minor judge. But I think he teaches us something less than, there are no minor judges. It's only minor. This guy may have had a great life. We just get a little piece of it. There's a second minor judge that we're going to address. He's the opposite side. This guy's named Jair, and he's, he's moving upward, but it's an opportunity to see that upward means downward <laughs> at the same time. He, he's, he's moving up the, the social and the economic scale, but it's an indication that things are, are falling more and more out of control. And the quest for power is not limited to these major political people, like Abimelech, who, who set himself up as a king. It can be just smaller people like Jair, who nobody's ever heard of. But in his little realm, he's trying to assert himself and get a, get a foot up on everybody. He, Tola, was followed by Jair of Gilead who led, or he judged Israel, 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which is to this day called Havath Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Kaman. That's all we know. That's all we know. Um, this guy has 30 sons on 30 donkeys. Um, by the way, to have 30 sons... You have to have a lot of wives. He probably had a harem. He's trying to make himself as a king, and he has 30 donkeys. I did a lot of reading. I'm not going to bore you on all of this. Trust me, in the ancient Near East, a donkey is a BMW, okay? The regular people don't have donkeys. Donkeys are royalty. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on the, in the triumphal entry, they go find a donkey for him to ride in because it, it, was, it was the smooth riding. It's not a camel. It's not a horse, which is a warrior. Um, it, it's, it's once you've conquered a city, you ride into the city on a donkey. These guys are 30 sons from his harem on 30 donkeys, and now he's setting them up to control these 30 cities. Um, there's a play on words here. Um, Lawson Younger says this, the obvious alliterative play on words, by the way, not all that obvious. I mean, when I was translating through this, I didn't notice it until he pointed it out, but there's a play on words between Jair, donkey and city, and it creates a humorous irony in the passage. Um, Jair, all these words in Hebrew, it's Jair, Ayer, Ir. Um, Jair has 30 sons riding on 30 ayers, and they're ruling over 30 ears. Um, Jair's concerns are not with saving Israel from anyone. <laughs> Instead, they're building a power base for himself and his sons. He's setting up, you control these 30 cities, and you've got, every one of you have got a donkey. He, he's setting up this kingdom that he's building. I, I'm going to make a quick application here. Building a kingdom for yourself has no place in the redemptive story God is writing on the pages of history. If you're just building a kingdom for yourself, if all you're trying to do is get ahead and get your share of the 30 donkeys and have your part of the 30 cities and you're trying to build a kingdom for you and your family, that is not what God is looking for. 
That's just contributing to the downward cycle in the book of Judges and in our culture today. Um, and this is not just true in the world. This is true um, in the church where, where kingdom building is a huge thing, where, where people are building kingdoms and they're, it's about the brand. You know, you're building your brand. You, we have the fellowship brand. Or, or even worse, you know, it's uh, find my sermons at kenwilson.com. Uh, by the way, if you find kenwilson.com, it's somebody else, not me. But it's all about building a brand and, and making sure you can have some place where, where you can pass um, the brand on to your family. Um, I mean, I think it's important to have a legacy of faith within your family. But if you're just building a, a kingdom and a brand, um, you're missing the point of how God wants to use you. We've seen two minor characters. Now we're going to move back to the big picture of Israel. And from here on out in this message, you're going to wish you would have pushed snooze and stayed home. Because Israel steps over the line. Um, Things change in the rest of the book of Judges. Um, From here on out, God does not bring a period of peace. Up to this point, when the judge delivers, it always says, up to this point... And then there was a period of peace for 18 years. There was a period of peace for 40 years. There was a period of peace for 20 years. From here on out, God is going to deliver through Jephthah and Samson no more periods of peace. It changes from here on out. Um, There's a severity to God's justice in this passage. God is harsh in this passage. And yet, his compassion still continues. The, The... I worked for a long time on how to say this, and it's really cumbersome, but the patient severity of God's justice and the boundlessness of his compassionate grace is an ever-present reality in the life of his people, in the ancient world and in our world too. I'm all about grace. I'm all about our life. One of the first value at Fellowship Bible Church is we are responding to the grace of God. We don't earn our salvation We don't deserve the blessings he gives. We are faithful because he was loving us first. I'm all about grace. But in this passage, the Israelites begin to take advantage of God's grace. And they step over a line. Here's how it begins to develop. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the way, this is the the seventh time we hear this. Numbers are big here in, this, in today's passage. This is the seventh time we're reading the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Ammon, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and, ha- and no longer served him, he became angry with them. A couple of things. We already know who the Baals and the Ashtoreths are. We, we, we know who that is. This Baal and Ashtoreth were a, a male and a female deity um, and they, they came together to produce fertility in the land. And if you could uh, worship them in a way that encouraged them to bring about fertility, then, then your crops would grow, and there would be rain, and your herds and your, your flocks would increase, and you'd have more children. Um, that's how they worshiped in, in vulgar ways, this, this um, Baal and Ashtaroth, in, in ways that they were trying to provoke them in their worship. Uh, to provide fertility for them. We already know they're, they're involved in that. 
But this passage does an interesting thing. It talks about the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Let me just show it to you on a map. Um, you see what's going on here? <laughs> he, he highlights all of the people around them. Uh, the, the Israelites are just looking around, and whoever's around them, they'll, they'll choose their gods. They're looking at um, the cultures around them and saying, hey, they're getting along pretty good. I'll, I'll live their way. I'll probably get ahead. But he's literally named the, the countries that surround them. Accommodation to the dominant culture, um, which is called idolatry, by the way. When you just assume the culture around you, whatever's going on around you, when you start looking like that, it's a subtle and deceptive temptation to, to acquiesce to the priorities and the values of the culture around us. It just seems natural. I mean, we look at the Israelites and we go, how could they have done all of these things? How could they have um, gotten involved in the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth and the gods of uh, Aram and the gods of uh, Moab and Ammon and Sidon and the Philistines? How, how could they have gotten involved in it? Well, it was just, it was right there. It was all around them and everybody was doing it. Everybody lived that way. Everybody has that app. Everybody watches that show. Everybody acts that way. Everybody cuts that corner. It was easy for them to accommodate to the dominant culture and just say, ah, that's how it always is. Let me point out something else here. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. This is just the beginning in this passage of it being clear that they've stepped over a line. Mary Evans says, anger is a faithful response to Israel's rejection. It's, it's what they deserved. All efforts to erase, erase divine anger from Scripture fail because God's anger continues to reappear in the Torah, in the history books, in the poetry books, in the prophets, in the Gospels, in the letters, and in the Apocalypse, the Revel, book of Revelation. Throughout the whole Bible, the anger of God is a reality. And, and we perhaps have emphasized the grace of God so much that we don't understand that there's a severity to his justice. And God wants to forgive but you can keep stepping over the line and stepping over the line and stepping over the line until finally he's angry. He's, he's had it. We continue to read. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. God's directive in this. He sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them for 18 years. They oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. For 18 years, they're shattering and crushing. These words are really interesting, hard to pronounce in Hebrew. But in Hebrew, uh, the the words rhyme. Ve'yaratsu, ve'yaratsasu. They're they're hammering and shattering. Um, To capture it in English, um, I I tried to, they shattered and battered them. Um, Eugene Peterson in the message says they bullied and battered them. There's, a, there's a, a poeticness to what's going on here. They're hammering them again and again. Um, <coughs> God's saying, 
listen, you, you, you've done this seven times now. I'm angry about it. So now these guys are going to just hammer and they're going to crush you and shatter you. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan. Now they're not just on the other side of the Jordan where some of the Israelites lived. They're crossing the Jordan into the, the actual promised land. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim, the, the big tribes. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. <laughs> Seventh time. Seventh time. They have forsaken God and worshipped other gods. And now for the seventh time, they're crying out. Um, again, I, I, I don't think this is repentance. I think they're just oppressed and they're, they're crying out for some help. <clears throat> you see that in the Lord's reply. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites... And the Maonites oppressed you. You cried out to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? Hey, I, I keep saving you guys. I keep doing it again and again and again. Um, let me chase a little rabbit here with some numbers. Um, the foreign deities that they worship, there's seven of them that's listed in that earlier verse. They're worshiping the Baals, the Asteros, and then the gods of, of uh, Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites and Philistines, that surrounds them. There's seven of them listed. Here now, God says, um, I delivered you from seven nations. The Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Moanites. And we don't even know who that last group is. I don't, you know, archaeological work, we, don't, we, don't, we have no idea who they, that, those last guys are. But, but God is saying, listen, You've, you've fully given yourself. Seven is this idea of this completion. And I've completely redeemed you every time you needed to, to be redeemed, beginning back there when I brought you out of Egypt. And then when I brought you out of Egypt, the Amorites and the, uh, the, uh, the, Amorites and the Ammonites, they oppressed you and they tried to prevent you from getting into the promised land. I delivered you from them. And then in the promised land, all these other people are oppressing you and I'm delivering you from all of them. Seven nations they, uh, they were um, bowing down to and seven nations God's delivered them from. I'm going to make a connection here. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, before Israel is going into the promised land, um, when, he, when they're going into the promised land, they list seven nations that are the Gentile nations. The, these are the foreign nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amor, uh, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven of them. Lots of sevens there, okay? I'm going to jump forward to the New Testament. Um, Jesus feeds 5,000 and 4,000, two different stories. Sometimes you get them confused. But in Matthew and Mark, it's very clear there's two different feedings. There's a feeding of 5,000, a feeding of 4,000. It feeds the 5,000 in Matthew 14. I'm just going to do the Matthew one. Uh, and he feeds the 4,000 in Matthew 15, a chapter later. Some interesting things happen here. When he's feeding the 5,000, it's in Jewish territory. And after he feeds the 5,000, they take up the leftovers, and there's 12 baskets of leftovers left. When he feeds the 4,000, it's a chapter later, he's moved to a new place. He's in a Gentile territory, and he feeds the 4,000. They take up the leftovers, and now there are seven baskets left over. 
in the land of Israel, in where those 12 tribes are, they have 12 baskets left over. Outside the land of Israel, where the, all the Gentile nations are, there are seven baskets left over. Jesus very intentionally is, is teaching us that Christ has more than enough provision for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Christ is all we need. He's got all the provision we need. But we are so stubbornly rebellious that that we keep turning and acquiescing to the culture around us. God's going to say, but you've forsaken me and you have served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. God says, I will no longer save you. And it changes from this point on. Again, from this point on, there's no more reports of, after this, they had rest for 70 years. They had peace for 18 years. You don't read that again. They're delivered. God doesn't totally give up on them. But he saves them in a different way. Uh, Michelle Knight says, thus at the outset of this Jephthah-oriented narratives where it gets really bad, Israel's sin has reached its zenith just as Yahweh's patience with the people had reached its end. God doesn't disown his people. They're still his people. But he's done with it being this way anymore. Yahweh's ensuing rebuke of Israel initiates a new era in the period of the judges in which Yahweh would no longer affect decisive victory for his people through the efforts of a deliverer. No more decisive victories with years of peace afterwards. And look at what he says. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I'll no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You keep turning to your addiction again and again? Well, just I'm tur- go see what it'll provide. The thing that you keep doing again and again, and you keep saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't want to do it again, but you keep doing it again and again. Eventually, God just says, listen, you keep doing it again. Just give yourself to it. See if that satisfies you. See if you find any relief there. Um, The Lord's sarcastic retort here indicates he's sick and tired of Israel's addiction to apostasy. I'm all about grace. (laughs) And I don't think God ever kicks us out of his family. But he can start to relate to us in a different way when we take advantage of the grace again and again. When we sin, the same old sins, and we confess, and then confess again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. It's been seven times. I don't think it's a magical number. But I do think at some point, God just says, I've had it. I'm not doing it anymore. You're taking advantage of my grace. We're not going to continue to operate the same way we've always operated. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. They're like, oh no, oh no. (laughs) Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. They do it one more time. They, it's like, no, it was really bad. It was really bad. Um, 
That last phrase, he could bear their misery no longer. It's, it's a, a little complex. Um, the phrase literally is, his soul was short because of Israel's misery. His, his nefesh, his soul, literally his soul was short. He was tightened up. They did this again and God just goes, Ugh. I mean, I mean you, there's a very clear word picture of just this. Um, and, and it's because of Israel's oppression, Israel's hardness. There's something hard either happening to them or happening in them. The two options are God's either compassionate because Israel's oppressed. Either God could bear their misery of them being oppressed no longer, which is kind of how you, you might read it, first of all. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's clear that God is exasperated because Israel's stubborn. <laughs> In either case, God is gracious and Israel is undeserving and manipulative. Um, this idea of, of impatient exasperation um, it is used a bunch of times in scripture, this, this word for, for being pulled up short. Um, it, it's, it's used for exasperation. It's going to be used in Judges 16 of Samson after Delilah just nags him again and again and again. Delilah just keeps going, tell me the riddle, tell me the riddle, tell me the riddle. And he just gets exasperated and finally tells it. This is the idea. God is he's exasperated with them. Um, Bob Chisholm says, no matter how much, how one understands verse 16, the text stops short of saying at least directly that Israel's repentance prompted, prompted God to intervene. But it is possible in light of the subsequent developments that Israel's repentance opens the door for God's compassion. God doesn't say, okay, you finally got it right. Now I'm going to help you out. No, God is exasperated with them. And, and he sees what's going on and opens the door to his compassion. Barry Webb says this, their repentance is merely a tactical move, a contrition of convenience. Anybody ever been a teenager? Anybody know a teenager? Anybody know what a contrition of convenience looks like? I know that. <laughs> it was a tactical move. It was a contrition of convenience that will not last, and it doesn't. They have used him like this before, and he refuses to let them do so again. Lawson Younger says, with each round of apostasy, the nation seems to plunge deeper. God's response is more serious, and the judge for the nation is less qualified for the role. God is gracious, and God continues to be gracious. God will, will not kick us out of his family the children of Israel are still his people. He still uses them to bring about Messiah. I personally believe there's still a future for ethnic Israel. That's another discussion. But God doesn't give up on his people, and he doesn't give up on them in the book of Judges. But he does change how he relates to them because they have stepped over the line. And I think there's a lesson for us there. If, if you've been confessing the same old sin again and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Maybe it's time to change your approach. <laughs> Maybe it's time to, to get serious about that. <laughs> it's going to just get worse. Here's how the passage ends. When the Am uh, Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, 
Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Made it sound like, oh yeah, they're getting ready to get another judge, Jephthah. No. God's not going to raise this guy up. They're going to go find him. And they're going to get what they deserve. (laughs) God doesn't raise him. Now the Spirit's going to come on him at one point. God's going to use him. But they are the ones who go seek him out. Kenneth Way says, God may get exasperated and withhold deliverance when his people are addicted to sin and try to manipulate him. Let's not think about them. If we're addicted to sin, it keeps happening again and again. And we're trying to manipulate God. God, you're gracious. I know you're gracious. God, your grace covers all this. If you're trying to manipulate him, God will pull up short. God looks at you with exasperation. So here's what I want to say. Trying to pull Tola, Jair, and the Israelites together. Through the good and the bad, the big and the small, and the rich and the poor, God's always advancing his purposes. He's going to advance his purpose. Okay, Whether there's a Tola, who's kind of a respite, or a Jair, who's contributing to the downfall, or Israel which is just moving further and further into the degeneration. God's going to advance his purpose. But how he relates to us in the middle of all of that, if we continue in our idolatrous acquiescing to the cultures around us, rather than making him the priority of our life, he'll turn us over to it. And stop saving us the way he saved us all the time. So here's some next steps. God will never give up on his children. You can count on that. He does not give up on his children. But you may pass a point of no return where God can't use you the same way he could have. Uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. I want to compete in such a way that I don't get disqualified. The King James said, put on a shelf. You keep at it. Keep taking advantage of God. At some point, he may just go, You need to go on the shelf. I can't keep doing this anymore. So here's my warning. (laughs) Repeated shallow repentance will not put you in good standing with God. If you're taking advantage of God's grace, by the way, right now, aren't you wishing, I should have slept in? Repeated shallow repentance will not put you in good standing with God. God is gracious. But when you keep on doing it again and again and again, even when you confess, even when you say, God, do to me what you will, um, it exasperates God and he he starts to treat you in a different way. So here's my uh, challenge to you today. Face your sin honestly, confess it, and really repent. Uh, My guess is if you're worried about it, you probably haven't passed the point of no return. If, if, it's, if, you're, if you're struggling with it right now. Um, if you're just going, oh, I think Ken's wrong. God's just gracious. I, I've confessed so many times, and, and I'm still successful. My herds are still growing. <laughs> My guess is if you're there, God's just looking at you just going, Ugh. But if you're worried about it, and you're going, you know what? I've got I to put an end to this. Be honest about your sin. Confess it and really repent. Um, 
I had to do this. I'm, I'm going to do this differently than I did first service. Um, during the end of our service here today, we usually have an opportunity for people to come down and pray. And we're going to have a couple of elders down there for you to pray with if you want to pray with somebody. But this may be the one time at, at fellowship that there's an opportunity for people to say, you know what, I don't need to pray. I'm going to come down and confess. And you're going to go to the love of God and you're just going to put your hands on the love of God and say, for the love of God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be controlled by this anymore. I'm not going to take advantage of your grace. Or if you realize my only hope is in him, I've tried in my own strength, my only hope, come down here, grab hope, grab love and confess. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an out. If, if for some reason... You're just sitting here and you're saying, there's no way I could do that. Um, We still have a cross up in the fireside chat room from our Ash Wednesday celebration where you could go uh, during this week and you could go, we have white or black notes and you can write some confessions and put them in there. But but I think today there's an opportunity uh, for you to confess and maybe to make this a little bit easier. Here's here's what I want to do. I led the confession first service. I, I went to the side to confess. I'm going to lead again. But I guess to make it a little bit easier, I just want to say, you know, everyone who's a sinner in the room, would you stand up? Okay. These are the people qualified to go to the cross and confess your sin. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to say you have to go. Maybe no one goes but me. And you can pray for me. But this is an opportunity for us to maybe what you're hearing here is, yeah, that's right. I've done this so many times. I'm sick and tired of it, and God must be sick and tired of me. And I'm going to take care of it today. There'll be a couple of elders down front if you need to pray with them, do. If, if not, just walk by them, push them aside, and, and put your hands on, on God's love and, and, and hope in him. Father, not in any manipulative way, um, But because we know you do love us and you are gracious to the end. But Father, we do know that you're a holy God and you won't be taken advantage of. You know what our hearts are and you know when we we confess that sometimes it's just a confession of convenience. Lord, I pray that you'd get a hold of our hearts that we would recognize that there's no shame in this room because we're all sinners. And Father, I pray that you would lead us to accept your grace but not take advantage of it by humbling ourselves and repenting. And, and a lot of people may do that in their seats, God, and that's okay. There's no judgment. They may do it later this week up in, before a cross in the fireside room. However this happens, Lord, Lord, I pray that we'd put the things that we are so easily entangled in, we'd put them behind us, and we would know the joy of your forgiveness. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.